2: Committed is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Allison Pataki and Dave Levy had been married for a few years when Allison got pregnant with their first baby. They were young, barely 30, and they decided to take a break from their busy schedules to take a baby moon in Hawaii. Folks from
4: the cockpit, again, welcome aboard Double Flight
2: 1929. We're number three for takeoff. Be airborne here in just a little bit. This would like to ask him and
4: flight. so an hour into the flight, he nudges me awake, and I, I groggily, you know, stir from my little nap and turn to him, and he says, Allie, does my eye look weird? And I looked into his eye, and I said, yeah, your eye looks really weird. The black of his eye was so dilated that the whole eye was black. But it was just the one eye, which was so weird. So I just said, Dave, are you having a stroke? And he just gets really quiet and looks down, and he nods, and he goes... I think I might be. And a few minutes later, he lost consciousness in the middle of the flight. It was just a like everything about life that we had thought and planned and hoped for was just in that moment gone, you know, when Dave shut his eyes.
3: I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed. Dave and Allison first met in college, at a bar the first semester of freshman year at Yale. Allison didn't really know that much about Dave. She thought he was cute, he was a lacrosse player, and she judged him based on those two things. They didn't actually get to know each other until sophomore year when they sat next to one another in this art and architecture class.
4: I quickly learned that I had judged him completely wrong and that this handsome, strapping Midwestern guy was actually really smart and was, you know, taking this full course of pre-med in addition to the classes that I knew about that we had together, the one class, and I just realized that there was a lot of depth to this guy and that this was somebody I really admired and respected.
5: She had just broken up with her previous boyfriend a couple months before and good timing for me and it worked out and we... Uh, Just started off as a friendship and then eventually blossomed into a nice romance.
3: (laughs) They ended up dating for the rest of college, and then their relationship got thrust into the real world. Dave was going to med school at Columbia, and Allison was working as a production assistant for ABC. So they were both in New York, both crazy busy, trying to navigate their way through their early 20s. It certainly wasn't the protective, easy womb that a college lifestyle is. In the summer of 2010, Dave planned two very important meetings. The first one was with Allison's parents to ask permission to marry her. Now, this was a little daunting because Allison's dad happened to be the former governor of New York State. But Dave handled himself pretty well.
5: I took them out to dinner in uh, Manhattan and asked them, and they were very effusive in their uh, welcoming me into the family. He also took
4: my girlfriends out. To ask their permission as well. That's right, that's (laughs) right. Which I appreciated. (laughs) I
5: forgot about that, yeah. He
4: was out to dinner with, you know, these three girls, and they pretended that they were on an episode of The Bachelor.
5: And so then I proposed to her.
3: Actually, it wasn't that easy. They went up to Allison's family's place near Lake Champlain. Both sets of parents were in town under the guise of a joint vacation. Dave's parents were the ones who brought the ring, since he'd had it made by a jeweler in Chicago.
5: They came to hug me, and they locked their bag in the car. Yeah, the bag with the ring in it. And we had to, like, somehow Jimmy opened the car door to unlock it to get the, the ring, which was in one of their bags in the car. And that was a, a very suspenseful uh, experience that Allie, of course, was unbeknownst of. But for me, it was a, it was a big deal at the moment.
4: I suspected it would be coming at some point soon, so I thought maybe it would be that week. And then the morning he did it, we were sitting by the lake and he said to me, you know, at some point I should probably get your finger size, you know, because at some point I'm gonna need to get you a ring. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, so he's just now starting to think about getting the wheels in motion. You know, he's just starting the process now, so we've got a long way until he's actually, you know, ready to propose. So I hadn't expected it to come that, that evening.
5: And so I took her up on this hill, and I, I think I pretended to see a four-leaf clover on the ground, and that allowed me to get on one knee, and then from that knee I proposed.
3: They got married in September of 2011 at the local church near where Allison grew up.
4: And then we came back to the house and danced in the backyard all night, and my grandmother at the time was in her late 90s, And I really wanted her to be there, but she was largely housebound. So it was great because she could come, and all of our friends and family could come, and it was a really personal, intimate setting. Mm -hmm. And... It was a wonderful time because we went to school together, we have a big community of, of friends in common, and we were still young and energetic at that point. Nobody was exhausted from yeah. the early days of having children. Um, so it was just a really fun celebration. We. We, we're both really close with our families, and we love our siblings, and, so, and we both come from big families. You know, Dave's one of six, I'm one of four. So we ha- it just felt like one big group hug. And what was fun is our wedding anniversary, just the way it, it ended up working out when we planned our wedding, it was seven years to the day from our first kiss. And hmm. so we had been together seven years, and we got married, and just this past September we celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary. So we have mm-hmm. now been together... 14 years.
5: Yeah.
3: They were relatively young when they got married and wanted to wait a little while before they had kids. Medical residency is structured so that the early years are the toughest. You're working the hardest, the longest, and then it starts to get better later on. The point was they didn't want to have a kid in the first year of Dave's residency.
5: We plan to have a child around the start of the fourth year of residency or end of my third year of residency.
4: Yeah, and as they say... Medicine, when you're married to a doctor, medicine makes for a very demanding mistress. So there, you know, it's not even possible to conceive if you never see your husband because he's always with his medicine.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Allison got pregnant with their first back in 2014. That's when they decided to take that baby moon to Hawaii. They got packed, got on the plane, ready for some sun, some beach, and some much needed relaxation. But they never made it to the islands.
4: And so an hour into the flight, he nudges me awake, and I I groggily, you know, stir from my little nap and turn to him, and he said, does my eye look weird? And I looked into his eye, and I said, yeah, your eye looks really weird. But it was just the one eye. His pupil, the black of his eye, was so dilated that the whole eye was black. And so I was like, look out the window and see if it makes the pupil constrict, because you just know when your eyes dilate. Sometimes if you look at a bright light, the pupil constricts. He looks out the window. The sun is setting outside. It's an evening flight. He turns back to me and it's it's still weird. And he says, I can't see anything out of my eye. And so I, just being an alarmist and knowing that he's the doctor who's, you know, cool as a cucumber, I figured I'll just throw out the most outlandish exaggeration possible and he'll just laugh it off and tell me I'm being ridiculous. And so I just said, Dave, are you having a stroke? And he just gets really quiet and looks down and he nods and he goes, I think I might be. And a few minutes later, he lost consciousness.
5: Yeah, I I don't remember that event. I remember boarding the airplane, but I don't remember the actual struck.
4: We just were like, we've got to get him on the ground. We have got to get this guy to an ICU. And so I, I just looked at the flight attendant. And I said, you know, we're flying from Chicago to Seattle. What, where are we? Are we over Montana? Where are we going to land? He said, we're going to land at Fargo, North Dakota. And I said, okay, I've never been to Fargo. Is that a good hospital there? They said, we have no other choice. So they just drop us down into Fargo, and the ambulance with the paramedics team was waiting for us, sirens flashing on the runway when the plane landed, and they come on, and they make this makeshift gurney. They take Dave's unconscious body off the plane, and I'm just walking behind him in this daze, and everyone I pass as I walk up the aisle is just looking at me with this concern and people are saying, you know, good luck, we'll be praying for you, we hope your husband will be okay, and I'm just in this daze, just thanking them and just, you know, stumbling, waddling, you know, at five months pregnant, up the aisle towards this
3: ambulance. They arrived at the ICU in the middle of the night. The doctors didn't quite know what to make of this situation. Here's this 30-year-old, healthy, athletic guy getting wheeled in unconscious with his five-month pregnant wife.
4: And so it wasn't until a few hours later that they came back and they said, in so many words, it was stroke and it was the really, really bad, really unlikely one. And, you know, we're sorry. And at that point, they couldn't really predict anything further. They didn't know if he would wake up. They didn't know why it had happened. They didn't know what it meant for Dave's chances. You know, we informed Dave's parents and my parents and the decision on their part was we need to get out to Fargo because, you know, Dave might be gone any minute and we, and they wanted to make it out here to say goodbye if need be to Dave and to be here with me if that was how it happened. And it was just surreal. It was just a, everything about life that we had thought and planned and hoped for was just in that moment, gone, you know, when Dave shut his eyes.
3: Let's take a break here.
0: We'll be right back.
6: Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So now Dave's in the hospital in Fargo, North Dakota. And Allison's dealing with the possibility that her life may never be the same.
4: And it was just awful. It was just, it was so scary and so foreign and hard to process. And I think I was just in this state of shock because I was sort of vacillating back and forth between, on the one hand, understanding that there was a significant likelihood that my husband might not ever wake up and that maybe he was dying right in front of my eyes. And then on the other hand, having these really... Absurd kind of magical thinking thoughts like, oh, maybe he'll wake up and we'll still get to make it to the second half of our baby moon. You know, just complete shock. And a really terrible moment was in the ICU that night when Dave was lying there unconscious in the hospital bed. A nurse came in really kind and really well-intentioned, and she said, you know, you're pregnant. You need to take care of yourself. Do you want me to run a Doppler? over your stomach so you can hear the heartbeat, wouldn't it make you fe- feel so much better to know that, you know, the baby was okay? And I just thought, well, why wouldn't the baby be okay? Yeah, of course the baby's going to be okay. Are, y- are you telling me there's a chance that in one night both my husband and my baby might not be okay? Like, And I just said, you know, I can't I can't listen to the baby's heartbeat right now because listening to the baby's heartbeat on a good day With Dave in the hospital room next to me holding my hand, you know, both of us happy makes me weepy. I can't even imagine what it would do to me right now to listen to it. And the baby's going to be okay because the baby has to be okay. You know, we need to pull through this together.
3: After a few days, the family wanted to move him from Fargo to Rush Medical Center in Chicago.
4: So eventually, when he was still in and out of consciousness, but he was still hooked up to life support... And he was on so many different tubes and wires, but they were able to medevac him through an air ambulance. And so we flew him from
3: Fargo back to Rush. When Dave woke up, he wasn't Dave. In fact, he wasn't anyone that Allison recognized. His brain at that point was essentially the brain of a newborn baby.
4: He was in a state of total amnesia. And, you know, what are the first things that a baby can do? A baby cries, you know, so their lungs are working. They can breathe on their own. And a baby swallows. You know, a baby goes to his or her mother's breast or a bottle and, and drinks milk. And Dave couldn't do any of those things. You know, Dave, it would be days before Dave, when he woke up, could pass the swallow test to have liquids. And, you know, Dave couldn't breathe. He was intubated. And so he had to basically regrow his brain from that of less functional than a newborn. So Dave doesn't remember, obviously he does not remember Fargo. He does not remember the ICU at Rush. And his first kind of blurred memories begin to come back to him when we were in that inpatient facility for rehab in Chicago. But like these huge things happened that Dave would have just relished. Like for instance, he'd been waiting, you know, all season and been watching the Chicago Blackhawks make it f- closer and closer and then they finally win the Stanley Cup and Dave watches the whole thing and you know celebrates it and then the next day I go in and he doesn't remember that they won the Stanley Cup. He doesn't remember that he watched. He doesn't remember anything about the game. You know, he was not making memories from one day to the next. And so that was scary because That just meant that although my husband woke up and he was there physically right in front of me and and looked good outwardly, inwardly and mentally, it was not the same Dave who had gone to sleep. And it was not Mm. my husband. And I didn't know if I would get my husband back.
3: In the midst of this was the baby, growing larger day by day. And yet, Dave's grasp on the baby's existence was tenuous at best.
4: Sometimes he remembered that it was a girl. Sometimes he remembered that we'd picked a name, Lily. Sometimes he'd blab that name, even though we had decided <laughs> to keep it a secret. Yeah. <laughs> um I put pictures of the ultrasound in front of him in the hospital room and put pictures, you know, covered his room with pictures of his past and his family and friends and and anything to kind of trigger his memory.
3: Let's take a break here. When we get back, we'll hear more about Dave's difficult recovery.
1: And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Leila Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share Other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing.
3: Alison is a planner. It's something I can relate to because I'm also a planner. I need to plan the next week, next month, next year, next five years. And when I can't make a plan, I feel like I'm going absolutely insane. But you can't plan around a brain injury. She didn't know if Dave was going to recover. And if he did, she didn't know if he'd ever be the same
4: this was the first time in our life where I couldn't make plans. There was no way to know. There was no way to know in the morning what that day would bring or what the next day would bring. And it was really a moment in our lives when we were taking it hour by hour, day by day. I didn't know when Dave would get out of the hospital. I didn't know how he would be when he got out of the hospital. Then we moved into rehab. I didn't know when he would get out of rehab. I didn't know how he would be when he got out of rehab. It was just... Like our life had been completely upended. And it was it was truly day by day. And how we survived it was because we had love and support from a really, really supportive family and community
5: mm-hmm. and friends. Allie was absolutely wonderful in this. And she was very, very patient with me. I can't imagine that it was very easy to be with somebody who was as infirmed as I was, it's probably very frustrating. Uh, I couldn't do anything. She was just a wonderful, wonderful support. And I think that patience is the key thing that she demonstrated with me. Very loving and, you know, always reminding me that I was loved. It, it was a really um, incredible experience and that's why you get married, that's why you, you find a soulmate. That was what I found with her. And I was so, so, so lucky to have that, no doubt about it.
4: Dave would have these days where things got weird and things got scary. And sometimes he would have the worst days right before he'd take a big leap forward, and then we'd have a good day. And then the opposite would be true. You'd have a good day, and you'd think, oh, that was the old Dave. Like, I'm seeing Dave emerge. And then you'd take a step back. And so one of the best metaphors we heard for it from a fellow brain injury survivor and couple, Bob Woodruff and his wife, Lee Woodruff, who'd been through Bob's own traumatic brain injury. As I said, it's like one of those freaky carnival funhouse mirrors where one minute you're looking at the image and it looks one way, then you step an inch to the left and it looks completely different, and then you step an an inch to the right and it looks completely different. It's all distorted and weird and freaky. And that's how it is with brain injury. You know, one minute things look almost kind of normal. And then the next minute they just look weird and freaky. And that's that was our experience with it too. So Dave had to go through this process of growing his brain from, as we said, less functional than that of a newborn, through like a toddler, a toddler in a big 200 pound physical body, and then a kid, and then a teenager. And, and really he had to go through all of those phases again. And, you know, we'd been really, really distraught with the magnitude of his stroke. But then it was the goal that we would get Dave to survive. And then he reached that goal. And then the goal was, okay, we're going to get Dave to wake up. And he reached that. Then it was, okay, we're going to get Dave to start remembering and start acting like himself. And then he reached that. And we, he just kept redefining the goal and the success.
5: And, and something that I, I, I'm i not sure you know I remember entirely, but Allie was very good about not talking so much about my Recovery and you know the X's and O's of my therapy session or my medications or whatever. Like we we talked about other stuff. We talked about life, and that was so uh, meaningful to me because the recovery and everything can be exhausting, can be draining, especially when you're somebody like me who was young and getting a ton of uh, therapy. You know, because I could maybe get better. Allie did a great job of taking my mind off of that stuff and talking about all this stuff, talking about life. And that was so, so meaningful.
4: You lose your power when you have a brain injury. You lose your agency. And I just thought, how devastating and demoralizing and depressing must that be once you are aware that that has happened? You know, that you went a week ago, you were performing surgery and now you can't even hold your own fork. How crushing and devastating is that? And so I really worried about Dave from that perspective too. And that was why I wanted to be patient and loving with him, was I wanted him to know that we still loved him and that we supported him and that we were in it with him and that he was going to continue to fight to get better and that we were going to fight alongside him.
3: Allison started a ritual that first night in the ICU. She didn't know it was a ritual at the time. At the time, she was just a scared wife pregnant with her first baby who decided to write her husband a letter.
4: And I just was thinking, you know, Dave was lying there unconscious. I didn't know if he would wake up. And we were going through this insane experience. And I was feeling our baby kick like crazy inside of me because she was hopped up on stress and cortisol and adrenaline. And I just thought the person I need to talk to about all of this is my husband, you know, my partner, my best friend. And he wasn't there to talk to. And so I just thought, okay, then I'll write him. You know, writing has always been my best way of processing and making sense of the world as a writer. So I thought I'll write to him and, you know, almost as like a survival mechanism in that moment. And then when it became clear that Dave was not remembering anything from hour to hour, let alone from day to day, we were just having these really intense days, you know, where I didn't count on myself to be able to remember everything we were going through. You go, you know, he had a a newborn brain, you know, he had to go to bed by 630 or 7 o'clock at night, most nights. And so I would just sit by him while he'd be going to sleep, and I would type, and I'd write him his letter, Dear Dave. And I just thought, wouldn't it be so wonderful if someday Dave is well enough to wonder what these days were like, and what he went through, and what we went through? And what if he has questions? Wouldn't that be so wonderful? I'm going to write it all down, so that someday he can know what he went through and what we went through. And so I wrote him those letters every day, Mm -hmm. and combined them with these notes that were pouring in from loved ones, teammates, friends, family members, classmates, people writing about memories of Dave from childhood, people writing about moments when Dave had inspired them or touched them. And I compiled all these letters into one place and I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be so great if someday Dave could read all of this? It would be like hearing the eulogies given at your funeral by the people who love you, but then being able to be still alive and to know what you've meant to so many people and to go forward in life knowing that and assimilating that in to who you become going forward. So I put it all together and I, I called it Dave's Massive Book of Fan Mail.
3: Do you have a favorite of the letters that you wrote him?
4: There was one moment, there was one day when I was a little bit late, because my whole thing was I didn't want Dave to be alone for a second, I because he didn't remember things from day to day. So I didn't want him to wake up and have that be the day when the memory returned. You know, I pictured it as like this one moment from like a romantic comedy when like you emerge from amnesia. And I was like, what if this is the day and he wakes up and he's in a hospital room and I'm not there and he doesn't know what's going on. You know, he'll be so scared, he'll be so sad. So I always, you know, wanted to be there the minute he woke up until the minute he went to sleep. And so one day I get there and it's like 15 minutes after he's awake and he's out of the room and he's already gone off to his first treatment. So I go to the room, I don't find him in his room. I check the occupational therapy room, I don't see him. I check the speech therapy room, I don't see him. So I make my way down towards the gym, thinking, you know, he must be in PT. And I hear music and dancing and I hear laughter. And I walk in and Dave is on the treadmill doing the grapevine to this song, throwing a football back and forth with one of the physical therapists, cracking them up and like going back and forth, joking with them. And it, I just felt for a minute, I was like, that's my Dave. That's the old Dave, that. And the, the therapist looked at me and was like, he's cracking us all up with his dance moves. And I thought, that's wonderful because that's what that's what Dave would have done. And so I loved writing that letter that night because I just started it by saying, Dave, today was a good day.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Was there ever a moment that you were writing these letters and you just thought, what if he never gets to read these?
4: When I didn't know if Dave was going to survive, I thought, well, at least even if he doesn't survive, I will have a piece of him, you know, in this daughter that will be born. And so, of course, you have those moments. And that's when you need the people you love to pick you up and to give you the hope and the support and the hugs and the love when you yourself are at your limit. And that was when having our daughter was such a blessing, you know, the joy she brought, the joy she brought to Dave. And that's when you lean on your parents and your friends. And yeah, I, I remember just thinking, is this going to be my life forever? You know, I have my husband who basically needs me the way a baby does. And I have my baby who needs me, obviously. And I just didn't feel like I was strong enough to be what they both needed and forget even caring about yourself, yourself, that goes out the window. But I just didn't know that I could do it for my family. And I didn't know if our family would be okay.
3: Dave and Allison count their blessings that Dave clearly remembers Lily's birth. It was about a month or two before she was born that he started forming really solid memories again.
5: And the day our daughter was born, October 17, 2015, was the same day as game one of the National League pennant where the Chicago Cubs we're playing the New York Mets, and I am a die-hard Cub fan. And at this point in time, the Cubs had not won a World Series in 107 years, and it was a big, big deal. And they lost that game in historic fashion. And I was watching it all, and it was very clear that they were going to lose the rest of the series. They were going to lose this pennant. They weren't going to make it to the World Series. I was going to be heartbroken again. And that would have been just the most devastating moment of my life ever. But I was so pumped with our daughter's arrival that I honestly, like, didn't even give it a second thought. I I didn't care. Like, it was just like, okay, like, they lost. Cubs are about to lose this series. You know, here comes Lily. And I was very, very, very excited about that.
3: For Dave and Allison, the goal was no less than full recovery.
4: And what does that mean? It doesn't mean it goes back to 100% the way Dave was before the stroke, what it means is we go back to having a full life, that Dave can participate and have a full life as a husband, as a son, as a father, as a friend. And, and that, that became our
3: goal. It took a long time. But Dave eventually did make that full recovery. He even went back into his residency program, but after everything he'd been through, it didn't seem like enough anymore. That's when he switched jobs.
5: Yeah. I, so I, my job now, I work in uh, hospital consulting, essentially, as opposed to just straight up medicine. I returned to residency after the stroke, after my recovery, but I was less than fulfilled from it, and frankly, there the, the were sort of feelings that had always been there. But I think with a family, you know, now I, I didn't want to subject my family to my own unhappiness from my work. So I bailed out of residency after a year, and then now I'm working in in hospital consulting out here in New York, and I love it. It's a lot more predictable hours, which is terrific to be home and available for my family, because that's, you know, the number one thing is being there for my kids and for my wife.
4: I would just say that Dave has this new perspective and You know, people always say like, how is he? How is is he exactly the same? I say, but you know, but no, whose husband is exactly the same as they were three and a half years ago? Like we're we're all humans in flux and every relationship is a dynamic thing and every person is a dynamic being. You know, maybe Dave before the stroke was type A plus plus, you know, a Mm -hmm. super hard charging orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. And maybe now he's A minus, maybe now he's B Mm plus, but that's not a bad thing. Dave reminds me every day, particularly now that parenthood is a new chapter in our lives that we've entered together since the stroke, He's he just reminds me about the importance of joy and patience. We both have this understanding of the fact that things can change in a second, and it's not something you plan for, and it's not something you expect, and it can happen when you're 30 or it can happen when you're 90. But that once it happens, you savor those good times.
3: Dave making a full recovery, Allison giving birth to a healthy, happy, and calm baby girl. It was all incredible news. But there's one more thing.
6: Well,
4: we just had our second baby, which was a joy that we did not think would be possible. You know, we were blessed to have Lily, and we thought, okay, well, at least we got to have one baby. And then... You know, Dave was there, and Lily got to know her father, and then we got to have another daughter. So we have our second daughter, whose name is Grace. And she, like her big sister, is just the greatest source of endless joy. And somebody said to me, in, in some of our darkest moments years ago, they said, life will never look the same, but I'm here to tell you as somebody who has walked the road of traumatic brain injury, that there will be joy again. And there will be hope and there will be laughter. And I didn't believe it in the moment, I will admit that, but it's true. You know, there is joy again, there is hope, there is laughter, there is love. And we defined you know, Dave's recovery as, what does full recovery mean? It means a full life. And now we have a full life. And it doesn't mean we have the same life, and it doesn't mean the life we had planned for, but it is good. We had this mug that Dave's mom put right when we got home from therapy. And it said, life is all about how you handle Plan B. And that's what we're doing. We're handling and loving Plan B.
7: This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza, with special thanks to Allison Pataki and Dave Levy. It was produced and edited by Ramsey Yunt with live recording by Joe DeGran and mixing by Tristan McNeil. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klang. Theme song and music by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's j o at committedpodcast.com. To learn more about Dave and Allison's extraordinary journey, pick up a copy of Allison Pataki's memoir, Beauty in the Broken Places, wherever books are sold. Committed with Joe Piazza is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.